up, gang? Thanks for listening to the Undiplomatic Podcast, the show with undiplomatic takes about the foreign policy scene. I'm your host, Van Jackson. In the booth, we've got Jake Dello, Gabby Magnuson, Pete McKenzie. Um, my son hears my podcast sometimes. Not the whole thing because it's foul, but <laughs> he, in doing editing and stuff so every once in a while, um, I'll have it on and he'll be he'll hear it. And so now he says... Thanks for listening to the Undiplomatic Podcast. Oh and then the, he's, he walks around and going, peace. <laughs> That's so cute. It's pretty funny. Oh, my God. Um, he tells people his dad has a podcast. That's um, that's less cute. Yeah. <laughs> that's where you're just like, okay, son, now we calm down. He puts the stickers all over the place, too. And I'm like, dude, those cost money. Like, <laughs> So this week, like every week, there's uh, too many things to cover. One side of, please don't get all your news from this show. Um, mm. I'm assuming you don't because like, if you're listening to this show, you must be very worldly, et cetera. But there is every week 10 or 15 things mm. that I really want to talk about that we don't have time to fit into an episode. Disclaimer. Public, pu- yeah. <laughs> but on the things that we can mention, uh, three things to bring up. One, uh, I met with a bunch of uh, Taiwans in a Track 1.5 uh, diplomacy shindig this week. One of the things that came out that surprised me that I did not love was that the Taiwans are huge fans of Trump and they think that Trump has done so much for them. And that's, of course, very upsetting to me. But not because uh, Trump gets credit, although I would be pissed off about that, too. It's because it's not true. Trump called President Tsai Ing-wen of Taiwan uh, very early in the very beginning of his administration. And that broke a long precedent of like not calling the Taiwanese president um, in deference to China policy. And so that was like something that Trump did that like they really liked. But beyond that, everything that has happened in Taiwan policy, um, U.S. selling arms to Taiwan, congressional uh, resolutions, expressing solidarity with Taiwan in various ways, um, sending U.S. officials to Taiwan. All these things that have been uh, an improvement in Taiwan policy have been happening by the bureaucracy or by Congress. And the phone call itself that Trump placed was a phone call that was, it, it wasn't Trump's idea, that came out of the staff. And so it's a bunch of like pro-Taiwan people, uh, which is not a bad thing, that are making these changes in China and Taiwan policy happen, that has really nothing to do with Trump. Like, I honestly believe that we would be seeing a, a, a closer move with toward Taiwan because of how everything's playing out with China. Um, so, you know, my advice to all foreign delegations is don't give credit to Trump for anything, because generally, if he promises something good, he won't deliver. And when something good actually happens by the United States, it will not be because of him. It will be coincident with him or in spite of him. I mean, Trump has such a great record of backing up his allies, right? Yes, he's such a, yeah. Such a reliable friend. Such a disaster. He just said a fucking week or two ago, I stand, I also stand with Xi Jinping. (laughs) How do you like? How can the Taiwan see that and be like, "Oh, he's he's our guy. Yeah, he's our guy. He's not gonna abandon us like he abandoned the Kurds or South Korea to or be fucking fair, NATO." I mean, if I was Taiwanese, I would be desperate for any friends I could find. You want good and, news, yeah. yeah? You want good news in the aftermath. It's an of optimism like- bias once again. <laughs> yeah. Trump benefits from our psychology. <laughs> Fuck. Um, another thing that hit the the airwaves very very recently was news that fourteen thousand. Uh, U.S. troops could be 
moving to the Middle East to counter Iran. Um, this is, you know, exactly what you would expect from Iran war hawks. Uh, this is Trump as unilateralist, Trump as militarist. And those are core traits, I tweeted this out, of neoconservatism. Trump is a neoconservative minus love for democracy. At least neocons claim to love democracy, yeah. right? And so this is horrible. It's It shouldn't be surprising, but like this is why when it came to John Bolton, who everybody obsessed about, frankly, I obsessed about too, to a degree, I always felt like Bolton's appointment was a symptom of Trump policy, not a cause of Trump policy. And the proof of that is in this continuing barreling toward neocon policies because 90% of the political appointees in his administration are neocons. And like nobody talks about that fact. And so he's staffed by hawks. Bolton was just the one with the mustache. Yeah. I mean, it's that old, old trope, right? Personnel is policy. And there's, it's never more yeah. true than with a presidential administration. I think it is worth emphasizing the, the crucial distinction from neoconservatives there. Uh, I think the massive, the biggest surprise with Iran is that uh, President Trump met a dictator that he didn't like, uh, which I find very surprising. Um, but it's so true. This is this is how he operates, and you've got to recognize that kind of consistency with previous administrations. Yep. And uh, last thing is uh, actually a shout out from a friend of the pod, Daniel Larison, writing in the American Conservative and quoting the pod that uh, in an article called The Coming Crisis with North Korea, pretty self-explanatory, actually, um, we're headed toward cri crisis with North Korea. Um, it's a, it's basically a crisis of our making, the, you know, the, the belief that we sort of escaped a crisis in 2018 was more uh, illusion than reality. Um, that's why it was so important to recognize that the Trump-Kim summits it, that's the fact that it was reality show diplomacy necessarily meant that we weren't actually ameliorating any of the conditions that led to crisis in the first place. Huge problem. No one's doing anything about it. And then literally right before coming in here, we have had our first tit for tat threat making by Trump and Kim Jong-un again. It's, it's at a lower level, but they're starting to threaten each other again. Little Rocket Man is back. Little Rocket Man is back. He says he might have to resort to military action if he has to. And Kim Jong-un fired back that uh, <laughs> they're ready to meet action for action at any level, all the way to nuclear. Let's move into prediction market. Basically, we get banned to predict shit. We laugh at it. We'll track it. We'll tell you how it goes. So continuing with tradition, let's jump into prediction market. I'm Jake, by the way. Jake Dello, if you didn't know. This will be the first time yeah. I've been let out of the editing booth. For... <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know how long this is going to last, so hopefully this goes well. <laughs> prediction one. In light of the signing of the Human Rights and Democracy Act by the United States and the response by the PRC, will Trump publicly address Hong Kong before the end of 2019? I think the answer will be no. Uh, he has other fish to fry, and he reluctantly signed the Hong Kong bill anyway. He didn't want to because, like we just said, he stands with Xi Jinping. So, <laughs> um, I, you know, and also the year is about to end. So we're, there's That's not a lot of time. Yeah, that <laughs> thinking. We got how many days? I can what? run out the clock on this, whether he <laughs> mentions Hong Kong. It's not another Israel situation. That's right. Which is, so far, the only one 
Van has got wrong. So we're on a roll. We're a bit mean to you last week. <laughs> we're a bit mean to you last week. Negativity Van, but we're bias. On a roll. <laughs> Prediction two. After NATO Secretary General Jen Stoltenberg's comments on China on Tuesday, will Trump resume his questioning of Article 5 over the course of 2020? Uh, yes, he will. Um, I could see something dramatic happening after that ridiculous cocktail party, Trudeau, Macron, Boris Johnson laughing at him uh, justifiably, but like surely this thin-skinned guy is not going to just like abide that. Right. Um, so at a minimum, I expect him to openly question the value of NATO over the next year, maybe even before the end of this year. I'm worried that he'll pull a stunt and do something more dramatic than that. But yeah, certainly he'll start calling into question uh, the U.S. commitment to NATO as he has previously. Yeah, I mean, very optimistic, this podcast. <laughs> I love it, especially in the mornings. Three, following the recent terror-related London Bridge attacks, will there be any drastic changes in British policy before their election later this year? I think so. I mean, I think no. I think no. Because I think that there's only one thing on the mind of the Brits, and that is Brexit. Well, and yes. I guess the election that I, I predicted. Did I predict that? Yeah. Yes, you did. Nice. <laughs> the, question sort of, the question sort of came to go on but the question sort of came out of the perpetrator was let out of prison early after being charged with previous terror related offenses including threatening to bomb a whole bunch of public buildings i read tories are making a thing of this that's like, what i thought yeah. yeah i don't see anything changing though in like people are talking about it i don't see new like counterterrorism legislation or something coming out of this and I think, I, I might be wrong, but I think um, the reason that he got let out early is that most criminal offences in the UK, you get let out a little bit early. So the full sentence that you get handed down in court is not really the full sentence that you serve. And that's caused quite a lot of controversy. So it'll be, I think that's where we'll see discussion is whether, I think it's a classic Tory talking point in the UK, whether you make people serve out that full sentence. So my answer is no. <laughs> Three solid predictions and one intro to my prediction markets and hopefully not the finale. Let's jump into Stay Off Twitter, where we create the best and worst of Twitter so that you don't have to. The funniest tweet I saw over the last week was um, from Kamala Harris, who sadly has dropped out of the presidential race, not entirely unexpected her campaign was in flames she was kind of captain of the sinking ship um so she's you know trying to preserve her credibility by leaving the race early and will return to the senate and it's the returning to the senate part which is crucial um donald trump as he's wont to do tweeted out when he heard the news too bad we'll miss you Kamala." and Kamala's response was don't worry mr president i'll see you at your trial Which is the ultimate, just absolute burn. burn. That's a sick burn. I just thought it was hilarious. And I think this is what we should have seen more of during the campaign, right? Like really leaning hard into that kind of prosecutor image. This is her instinct. This is her strength. It's it's good, actually, that she's stepping out of the campaign because the world needs her to be Mm. the attack dog in the Senate when the impeachment trial moves there. Mm. And so this is good for everybody except for uh, Giuliani and Trump. And uh, it's just unfortunate that it came at the expense of her campaign. Um, It did have lots of problems, including uh, full disclosure that I was 
sort of on the campaign. So, <laughs> so I mean, ill-fated from the start. Yeah. It was never going to work. So I was uh, a volunteer advisor on foreign policy for her. Um, but, you know, the show is not necessarily over. Everybody has uh, a million lives in politics. So we'll mm. see what happens. And it's worth remembering that um, Kamala got her kind of start on the national stage through her kind of intense questioning in Senate hearings. So, you know, her yeah. experience in this is going to really serve her well. Yeah. Um, and then the second tweet that I saw, returning slightly to um, the Iran topic that we just kind of chatted about in the intro, uh, is from Elon Goldberg, who's the Middle East Security Director at Center for a New American Security. Uh, and he's responding to the news that Trump is considering up to 14,000 more troops in the Middle East to counter Iran. And Ilan's tweet was, the costs of walking away from the JCPOA get higher and higher. If we end up with 30,000 more troops in the Mideast than six months ago, it's billions of dollars and a massive strategic distraction. And I was really curious to get your take on this, Van, because it seems like there's lots of things happening in Iran at the moment. So they just had a really severe crackdown on internal protests. There's been um, reports from American intelligence officials that they're moving missiles into Iraq using the cover of protests there. Mm. And now there's um, this breaking news that Trump is considering deploying due to like wider threats as well. How big of a role do you think the withdrawal from the JCPOA plays in this versus just kind of hostile action that Iran would have taken anyway, even if it was bound in this agreement? So that's a good question because under Obama, like we were very, very clear. So by the way, Ilan Goldenberg, um, he's at CNAS. He's like, I've known him. I he I worked with him when I worked in the Middle East office in the Pentagon for three weeks before I moved over to my home in East Asia. And so like we've known each other forever. Um, so hopefully, Ilan, you become a friend of the pod. <laughs> and, but he was also like heavily involved in the machinations of the uh, Iran nuclear deal. And what we were very clear at the time about the nuclear deal being just like one one bite at the apple. It was deliberately narrow in scope because we we Iran was a larger rival with us bilaterally and in the region. You don't just make enemies into friends by having a meeting or through um, coming up with some negotiated deal. Um, you it takes time. It's a wider process. And so there is a track record, including up to now, of Iran engaging in um, proxy attacks, proxy war, uh, subverting American influence in the Middle East, subverting American, uh, quote unquote, allies in the Middle East. They're, they're a malign actor in a lot of ways in their own region. But if you tried to like address all of that in one deal, mm. it would be not credible. If you could even get one, you probably yeah. couldn't even get one. So in order to get uh, half a loaf instead of no loaf at all, um, they they narrowed the scope to focus only on the nukes, uh, which seems reasonable to me. Yeah. And so then the idea is like if you can sustain the JCPOA, sustain the nuclear deal and build that track record of I don't know, reciprocity, goodwill, whatever you want to call it, just like, you know, basic trust building then you can start addressing other aspects of this larger rivalry. Um, and instead, we did like the opposite when Trump withdrew. So to me, like that's what the connection is. And it, it would not be surprising to me at all to find out that these intelligence claims are true about Iran 
uh, moving missiles across borders, et cetera. Um, the thing that would not have happened had we stayed in the Iran deal, though, is this the, the idea of plussing up 14,000 troops in the region to counter Iran. We could have, if we stayed in the Iran nuclear deal, um, maybe Iran still does belligerent shit in the region, but that belligerent shit would not cause us, there'd be a lid on it uh, because we have other incentives both on both sides to sort of get along. And so we would not be there. It's hard to see how we would be in the Iran nuclear deal and flowing forces to the region for a war. Like those two things don't really go together. So um, the for, the cost of 14,000 troops, which, and this has not happened yet, but it, yeah. Yeah. I almost, I mean, this, this could have been a prediction market question. Like I think it will happen probably. There's a lot of cost to that. There's also a lot of like strategic risk to that. And that's cost and risk that we could have avoided if we stayed in the nuclear deal indirectly. Yeah. So I think Elon's right. It's worth comparing the consideration of deploying, the really credible consideration of deploying 14,000 troops to uh, the Middle East with the train wreck announcement of the withdrawal of troops from Syria uh, and getting Trump's kind of claims yeah. what of are you doing? out of the Middle East. It's what's, just, what's, what's the rationale? that? Yeah. <laughs> just, it just it boggles the mind the way that this works. I, the, the idea that... There's a rationale that allows you to withdraw from Syria, but then plus up troops to counter Iran. I mean, there, there's no such thing as that rationale. It's the psycho rationale. It's the rationale of trading Kurds for oil, which Ouch. is very unfortunate. Ouch. Ooh. Ooh. Jake, the voice of Painful reason in burn. the booth. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. The, the thing that concerns me about this, too, like there is cost and risk. Do we end up in a war with Iran? Those are all problems. As as Asia guy... This is this completely undermines the Trump administration's own defense strategy and their own national security strategy. Even Republican hawks, like guys I know in Washington who worked in the administration and then got out to cash out, they or to escape before they go to jail, they are openly being like, this completely undermines our free and open Indo-Pacific strategy. This completely undermines our ability to compete realistically with China. So like even by your own own twisted neocon imperial rationale you're being an idiot like you're making suboptimal decisions here yeah and i think that's an important point to focus on is like there's a tendency i mean even in a format like this where we're kind of diving into lots of different regions all the time to look at each thing in isolation and you can't do that because it all works together and it all flows over to each other and when you do have this kind of like random hodgepodge approach it means that everything gets even more fucked as opposed to like limiting the damage to certain areas. Yeah, you have limited ability to focus. You have limited resources. Something something always has to be a priority and you want the priority to be manifested in what you say and what you do. And what we say the priority is in this moment in history is not where our actions are. Our actions are speaking something different. Exactly. And then uh, I've got two quick tweets one is from Matt Duss, who is the uh, lead foreign policy advisor for Bernie Sanders' uh, campaign, very smart leftist on foreign policy. And he said, quote, as the destructiveness of neoconservatism became clear in the wake of the Iraq war, you suddenly had a lot of neoconservatives out here like, what, what does neoconservatism really mean anyway? Am I right? It's just a word people throw around. Neoliberalism has reached this stage. 
end quote. So the the snark is appreciated as always. It reminds me of the quote from I don't know if you've seen the Usual Suspects, the Kevin Spacey movie. It's from the night like the nineties is a long time ago now. Yeah, but it's like a classic movie, especially for dudes. But he says like. I don't want to. I don't want to spoil the movie for you, fucking Gen Zers who haven't seen the Usual Suspects. You haven't seen the Usual in Suspects. A, in a sequel. Are you fucking kidding me? In a sequel You've seen to fucking Transformers. You haven't seen the Usual Suspects. Transformers is a big robot. The uh, Kaiser Soze. The Gen Zs in the booth are just like looking blankly. At <laughs> Damn it! I need some older people in this room. Um. <laughs> um so in the movie. Uh, Kevin Spacey has this line where he says the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he doesn't exist. And it's it's profound in the movie context. It's profound in this context, too. Like the, the greatest trick neoliberals ever pulled, like Milton Friedman and Hayek, et cetera, is to convince the world that like neoliberalism is not a thing. And the neocons like uh, Paul Wolfowitz and Richard Pearl did this back in the the later era of the Bush years, um, where they're like the epitome of neoconservatism in their writing and their statements and their decisions in government. And then they went on this tour publicly in the media and writing articles where they're like, what Matt thus says, like neoconservatism is not a thing. What is that? I'm supposedly I'm a neoconservative and I don't think of myself as one. So therefore, neoconservatism can't be real. To put it another way, you know, he's referring to shifting the goalposts or shifting the Overton window. You're making this the new normal and you're making it the new baseline. So you assess everything against a very different reality to how we understood it before. Yeah, it's just the ultimate political move to claim that something is like an apolitical space. Yeah. That's a every every in a world where like all things are expression of politics one way or another to say like, oh, we need to make this area sacrosanct is the like the boldest of uh, political things to do. Mm. Um, And it's true. But it's true. Like neoliberalism is a capacious term. It does. it, It gets thrown around like quite loosely, but it is also very real. There is a body of knowledge about its intellectual legacy um, when a lot of people use it, especially uh, on, on the left. It, it's used in a critical way, but it does refer to specific things. I mean, so like the, the podcast short version is that neoliberalism is systematically favoring capital over labor and it's insulating the global economy from basically the forces of democracy. And you can dress it up in different rhetorical trappings to say like well it's about free trade and human rights that would be like the positive spin but there's a preference function for neoliberals that says um, we need to achieve both free trade and human rights but free trade comes prior Mm. and that translates into capital over labor the Mm. only reason human rights matter in the neoliberal worldview is because you need labor to be able to move across borders freely so that capital can use it. And also you want labor to be, you know, generally conciliatory and differential. That's right. They need to be able to do what they have to do while you do what you want to do. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so anyways, uh, shout out to Matt Duss. And then the second uh, tweet comes from a Frenchman. <laughs> what? Oh, my God. First, a, fr- first. a Frenchman? <laughs> what? What is going on? <laughs> First time a Frenchman has appeared on the pod. Um, 
I guess I made We're bigger. We're so a multinational. Bigger... <laughs> <laughs> Cosmopolitan. Um, so I'm going to butcher his name because I'm not a, I don't speak this shit. Um, Gerard Araud, Araud. Uh, he's the, he's a former French ambassador to the UN. So we're not, oh, we're not, okay. if you're listening, okay, right. we're not clowning you, dude, <laughs> sir, whatever. Um, so, but he tweeted out, uh, quote, foreign policy is defending national interests on the basis of the balance of power. In each situation, the analysis of this balance defines what is possible and what is not, what is empty rhetoric and what is modest achievement, end quote. Um, so I find it notable, one, that the dude is European and a former ambassador to the UN of all places, and he is talking very much like a, a realist in real politic terms. I don't consider myself to be a, a, a realist, but I also like I subscribe to realism as like the entry point for all practices of foreign policy. Like the balance of power, my my shtick on this is if you don't mind the balance of power, nothing else you do will really matter long term. Like you're making yourself like existentially vulnerable to not figure out how to maintain a balance of power, how to avoid uh, the emergence of a, of a hegemon who could dictate your fate, you know. And so I feel like this is right. And if, you, if, if you're providing like a 101 on statecraft to someone who doesn't know anything about foreign policy, this tweet would be like a very good place to start. So and then in, this is happening in the context, too, of like Macron coming out pretty going hard in the paint on on trump mm. and on the u.s and like nato losing NATO's brain did apparently yeah yeah so um f the french are you know of this real politic strategic culture it seems um and for the former u.n ambassador to also be on that wavelength is, is notable crucial question van if you're not a realist do you not respect reality <laughs> Boom. Oh. Oh, punks. Realism's not even really a thing, am I right? <laughs> what are we even talking about here? Oh, man. <laughs> Let's move on to armchair analysis. So the premise of this uh, segment is that we dive into an article that we thought was interesting, was crap, was good, was funny, uh, and we tell you all about it and converse your reckons. Okay, so this week for armchair analysis, we have a... Uh, a piece from a outlet we haven't covered before, The Intercept, um, renowned uh, progressive outlet. And this piece is by Mehdi Hassan called Bloomberg's right-wing views on foreign policy make him a perfect candidate for the Republican nomination. So this article is what it says on the tip, right? And I think it's worth just going through a list of all of the things that Hassan um, points out about Bloomberg's foreign policy views. So he was an ardent and vocal supporter of the Iraq war. He actually parroted the fake link between Iraq and the 9-11 bombers nearby to the 9-11 memorial while hosting Laura Bush while she was trying to amp up support for the war effort. Uh, and then he pushed back on the Democrats when they called for a withdrawal time uh, timeline from Iraq. Uh, he, was, he is a friend of Netanyahu and flew to and expressed solidarity with Israel during both the 09 and the 2014 assaults on Gaza and said that Israel cannot have a proportional response when fighting Hamas, even when that means, which did at the time, killing Palestinian children. God damn it, Bloomberg. He hosted the Saudi, this is terrible, he hosted the Saudi crown prince in New York in March 2018 and took him for a photo op at Starbucks. <laughs> and then in October 2018, he said that the Saudi royals were going in the right direction 
without any mention of the elephant in the room, the assassination of Jamal Khashoggi. And he restrained Bloomberg News from criticizing pieces, uh, from publishing criticize, sorry, from publishing pieces critical of China, and has had no mention of Hong Kong. The one kind of exception to this is that he has the con- condemned the Uyghur abuses in China, but it's ameliorated by the fact that he said that Xi Jinping was not a dictator and was simply respecting the constituents in China. <laughs> and then I think it's worth quoting the end of the article in full. There is already a right-wing billionaire in the White House who lacks foreign policy experience, who supported the Iraq war debacle, and considers the Prime Minister of Israel, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, and the President of China to be among his closest friends and allies. Do we really need another one? Oh my god, this is such a damning piece. Yeah, it is debilitating. It should be debilitating. I mean, it won't the, be. The, uh, so first of all, I have to say... Bloomberg over Trump, seven days a week, eight days a week, twice on Sunday. Um, The there's no question. Yeah, it's such a low bar that that doesn't mean much. But yes, Bloomberg over Trump, right? I just have to caveat everything that I'm about to say with that. And he has done like he is sort of socially progressive in certain senses. Certainly, in in a domestic context, like the guys spent millions of dollars on gun control efforts. He's a big funder of climate climate change. change. Yeah, he is sort of multicultural. He believes in diversity and all that stuff. He just, those are like the parts of the progressive agenda that neoliberals are okay with or get on board with as they exacerbate global inequality and like, exactly you know, work to basically suppress us and pretend it's apolitical. Um, it also, I don't know if you know who Aquafina is, at least it's of this 100%. generation. Okay. Big well, fan of Aquafina. <laughs> so this is, this is not a copyright infringement because uh, it's in the background of what we're playing yeah, and that's supposed yeah. to be okay. Like, and also because we say it isn't. Yeah. That's how it works, right? <laughs> well, <laughs> that's a, that's actually not trivial. <laughs> so I just have to, if, in case you don't know who Aquafina is, she is the like crazy woman on that crazy rich Asians movie, um, and she was in Ocean's Eleven too. Crazy? How dare you? Cra- it's called Crazy Rich Asians, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But how dare you call her crazy? She's, she's the crazy one she's, on the crazy movie. She's the cliche crazy best yeah. friend. Yeah. Uh, so, anyways, she she published this song not too long ago. May a mind Bloomberg help me understand. A giant margarita's also gonna get bad. Gonna get bad. Gonna get bad. A giant margarita's. Yeah, I love it. Um, because he, of course, bans everything. For trivial reasons, yeah. so you know she's worried about her giant margaritas also getting banned. Fair enough, I respect that. You know, like I am also concerned about my giant margaritas getting banned. Yeah. So the th- I have several concerns with Bloomberg. Let's say he is der- the fact that this is happening. Like Bloomberg enters the race at a time when um, Kamala Harris, the only black woman in the race, has to bow out, mm. um, and it's largely for funding re- fundraising reasons. Yeah. Um, because you, if you have money, you can have zero in the polls and just keep going, you know? Bloomberg recently dropped, I think, don't quote me on this, but I think it was like a $37 million ad buy yeah. uh, in some of the first uh, nominating states. So he's, you know, going hard. He, so is Tom Steyer. Yeah. He's, like Tom Steyer, he's buying his way into the Democratic Party, into the Democratic debate. And Tom Steyer, at least, is like, a no shit Democrat. Bloomberg was literally an actual Republican 
10, 15 years ago. My favorite part about Bloomberg is that he was a registered Democrat uh, until he wanted to run for the mayoralty of New York. Then he realized that the Democratic primary was full. So he switched his voter registration to being a Republican, donated crap tons of money to the Republican Party in New York, got the nomination, became mayor of New York, and then now has become a Democrat again because he realized that that's the only way to run in the Democratic primary. Van, can you confirm that America is, in fact, not an oligarchy? I cannot confirm that. I cannot. It's not true. Yeah. You, <laughs> it is true. You, if you have, a, I mean, the one thing Democratic Party was missing was like another white billionaire dude, right? That's the one, th- that's, the, that's the thing we needed. My dream is two white billionaire dudes going yeah. up against each other in the general. <laughs> Billionaires are people too. <laughs> <laughs> Just for the uninitiated, does Bloomberg not own a giant media conglomerate? Well, there's that too. Yes. How does so? How does that work with advertising funding? He probably gets he, a discount for <laughs> Bloomberg does he Media, write it off or does it just come as free? Or so I think. I think Bloomberg News has promised not to, or they will cover him the same way that they cover every other candidate, which is a really credible claim coming from a media company that is literally called Bloomberg News. <laughs> They'll cover him the same way they cover Xi Jinping. Um, <laughs> so just like, yes, I am clowning on Bloomberg um, a this little bit. This has been bit. the biggest dunk session on Bloomberg. Yeah. <laughs> Despite all of that, I, like, I, I want to try and reserve judgment um, about his foreign policy until he actually articulates his foreign policy because I, wanna, I want to like, encourage him to pivot. Like, we all have a past. But based on the history, I'm concerned. Like, there's a track record here that is very hard to ignore. And so while he should have his day in court uh, PR-wise, messaging-wise, we have to acknowledge the fact that historically he's to the right of even Biden. As you said, he's unabashedly pro-China, which is to be functionally anti-democratic and functionally anti-human rights. Like, that's what that amounts to. By definition. Yeah. He's kind of somewhere, like, if I were to map him in foreign policy schools of thought, based on just what he said previously, he's somewhere between a neocon and a liberal internationalist. And there is overlap between those two uh, schools. And that is not a good thing because... Those two schools exhibit the worst instincts of American foreign policy. In an interesting way, he almost reflects what we were talking about with Trump before, where he pushes for an increased role by America overseas, but he also doesn't seem to care a huge amount about democracy and human rights and counts dictators among his best friends. Yes. Which is terrifying. And that's on top of a track record of like pretty shoddy judgment calls about things like Iraq. And so all like the totality of this is just like very disturbing. I don't see how this is going to end up being good for the Democratic Party. I also don't see him winning the nomination. I just see him being some kind of spoiler. Yeah. I mean, it's it's so his the path that he says he's pursuing to the nomination is to skip all four of the first nominating states and that then makes a lot win of Super yeah. Tuesday. Uh, so, I mean, it seems doubtful, but I, I think that is right that he'll influence the conversation in not great ways or restrain the conversation in not great ways. Yeah. Well, I'm already signed on to another presidential campaign um, post-Harris, but Bloomberg, if you need honest advice, just keep listening, baby. 
All right, now it's time for Ask Me Anything, where people ask me anything. So uh, jumping into our first question from Anonymous, they're asking, how does one end up giving foreign policy advice to a presidential campaign? How did you do it? How, uh, that's pretty funny. We were just talking about this off off air. So who is it from? I'm just anonymous. Anonymous. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, how does one end up giving foreign policy advice to a president? Um, so for me, my my exposure to this is like an N of three or four or five. I don't know. I don't. I, haven't, I don't have a lot of observations of this. I have some experience with this. From what I've seen, getting involved with the campaign on the foreign policy side is a hundred percent your like social network. Um, occasionally if you've written something or you have some, like people can Google shit and find you online or something, occasionally they'll like something you said or wrote, and then they'll like seek you out and consult with you that way. Like that does happen. That's how, uh, Trump got, what's his name? That fucking China Hawk guy, um, Peter Navarro, who's a like psycho. And, but he, he had all these like psycho books about like, China's hundred year, like all these, not hundred year plan, but like um, these China is the devil books basically, but way before it was in vogue. And (laughs) so Jared Kushner, this is a true story. Jared Kushner went to fucking Amazon and Googled China books, saw that uh, a book or two by Peter Navarro that had catchy hawkish titles and then reached out to him. And that's how Peter Navarro ended up in the administration running China policy. Um, that's, that's a true story, <laughs> true fucking story. So like that way that that's a perverse version of what could happen to get involved with a presidential campaign, but more often it's, it's networks. So like even what I've, I've never provided advice to a candidate that I didn't like, that's for sure. But there are lots of candidates that I like that I've never provided advice to. So, so like when I've gotten involved with campaigns or when I've been reached out to from campaigns, it's always been because somebody on the team, usually the Asia policy part of the team knows me or, or knows my work and is like, Hey, do you want to be involved in this? And that, that's how it happens. So you gotta, you gotta know people. So this is the one part of your career that you can say people can relate to. And you know, last episode, yeah. you're like, don't, you're on a unique track. Yeah. I mean, but the thing is, like, you don't have any control over knowing yeah. people. I mean, like, and I'm I'm like, a, but if I can know people, then anybody can, because I'm like fairly introverted, notwithstanding the podcast. And, um, you know, I don't know. I don't I don't talk to people very much. Maybe it's your winning <laughs> smile. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so our second question from Mrs. Lee. What do you think about the free Joseon movement? Is it legitimate? Is it dangerous? Will it liberate the North Korean people? So uh, for those who don't know, the Free Joseon movement is this almost like freedom fighters, government in exile kind of thing for North Korea. So it's it's ethnically Korean people, um, some of whom I think are actual like, you know, they're involved with North Korean defectors. But last year, or no, early, early this year or late last year, um, some people who were involved in the Free Joseon movement, Joseon is the alternative name for Korea in a historical sense. Um, and so some people affiliated with the Free Joseon movement infiltrated North Korea's embassy in Spain. And it was this very like cloak and dagger, like dramatic espionage kind of thing. Um, and the lead negotiator on the North Korean side for the nuclear talks 
was uh, the former ambassador to Spain for North Korea. And so, and they got a bunch of, they, they stole a bunch of records. They got a bunch of basically intel from the North Korean embassy. Um, it's very complicated because uh, at least one person has been um, arrested by the FBI for, it was like a former Marine, U.S. Marine, who is Korean-American, who was involved, I can't remember what it was, like weapon smuggling or something. There's all kinds of like illicit shit going on. Very cool, if I'm being honest. <laughs> but like also below the radar, a lot of probably illegal stuff. They see Kim Jong-un as evil, which on some level, yes, he certainly is. And uh, they're trying to free Joseon. Van's next project is to make Argo, except with Free Joseph in North Korea. <laughs> make a documentary about the embassy break-in. That would be cool. Um, so I, don't, I actually don't know what to think about the Free Joseon movement. Um, I think it's very risky to try and overthrow the Kim regime because they have fucking nukes. And so I'm not, like, I'm not, obviously, like, I hate North Korea's, you know, political character, but I just feel like it's, like, I'm not trying to unseat Kim Jong-un. I feel like that is the risk not worth the the effort. Okay. Well, there's a hot take on that. Um, and then for our last question from Jay Sizzle, I am not making these names up. Jay. This is the way they are. This is the funny are. name day. <laughs> okay, great. So from Jay Sizzle, I just saw on Twitter that you say no first use would be good for Asia. Why? So I, I did just say this on Twitter. No first use is referring to uh, the doctrine or the U.S. policy of, it would be referring to the U.S. policy of not <laughs> using nuclear weapons uh, first against another nuclear state, right? So like you only use nuclear weapons as retaliation, second use, right? Um, the U.S. has not accepted uh, no first use doctrine. The U.S. has refused, to say that differently, the U.S. has refused to accept a no first use doctrine but I'm a big supporter of no first use. I think it's good for stability, uh, especially in Asia, where you have um, the risk that China could end up putting uh, its own nuclear weapons into a, a, a first use posture. And they have not openly done that yet. And we should give them reasons to not do that. And with North Korea, our best guess on its on North Korea's nuclear doctrine is that it is first use right now. So if you have a bunch of nuclear states in a region who are rivals, who are all who all have a first use doctrine, it means that they're inherently like by definition on a hair trigger, because if they see nukes uh, about to launch or in the air or they think they do, then you got to go first. And so that's a lot of like needless risk. And the reasoning that would support you doing something so crazy is simply the belief that your willingness to launch nukes first deters the other side from ever um, considering launching first. And that to me is like, that isn't logical. Um, but that's the best argument in favor of preserving uh, first use right. I think it makes much more sense morally and strategically to say, look, we will only launch nukes if we're attacked with nukes. Um, and even then, we don't have to. Like our conventional capabilities are sufficient to probably destroy a country without resorting to nukes. Um, so like, what's the point? And notably, Warren, Sanders, sort of Biden, and now Andrew Yang, as of today, this is where the tweet came from, all have come out in support of no first use. So that makes 
uh, no first use doctrine, kind of the norm in the Democratic Party, but still everybody's not on board. Still, 100% of Republicans are opposed to no first use. They want to reserve that right to annihilate us all. And so, yeah, I, I, that, that's why I support no first use. Like there's a moral imperative to like avoid using nuclear weapons in the world if you can. There's a strategic imperative to buy down that risk of uh, first use pressures generally. I thought like the whole deterrence um, idea, that was the reason why you're plugging like billions of unnecessarily billions of dollars into your militaries. Yeah, no, it doesn't. It doesn't. To me, it doesn't make sense. To some people, it makes sense. I don't know. The good thing is that politically it's changing. So in the Obama administration, we did consider shifting like Obama actively considered whether to embrace a no first use policy. And then he avoided it because there's enough culturally conservative staff in the bureaucracy and in Washington who are like, just don't want to make waves. They don't want to like the Democrats to be like, oh, don't be that guy who's the dove or whatever. And so they tried to make arguments that were like politically pragmatic. Um, what would the allies think, et cetera? Um, I think the allies would like to be not nuked, you know? <laughs> and so um, Obama ended up not signing on to a no first use policy, but now the Democratic Party has shifted and that's a good thing. So I just think it's great that the person that doesn't want to nuke people first is considered a dove in the United yes, States. Yes, yes. <laughs> or say. slash weak, yeah. <laughs> I keep using this term a lot, but like the bar is low. <laughs> kind the of bar is low, is yeah, low. yeah. I'm just, Unfortunately. <laughs> that's what we're doing in the show. We are raising, oh, we are raising the bar. Oh, look at that. Boom. I didn't even plan that. New pod motto. Yeah. All right, gang, that's going to do it for this episode. You want to back us? Buymeacoffee.com slash undiplomatic. Rate us on iTunes or wherever you're listening. Uh, pretty soon, we're going to have a big reveal with a new bitchin' sponsor. Peace.